Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news podcast. And please don't forget, there's a donate button at the top of the web page. And we have a matching grant campaign on. A generous donor put up 10,000 bucks. And for every dollar you donate, it gets matched. If you're a monthly donor already, if you up your monthly, it will get matched for 12 months. If it's a new monthly, that will get matched for 12 months. So if you like what we do, now's a good time to donate. Hi, I'm Fox San Antonio's Jessica Headley. And I'm Ryan Wolf. Our, our greatest, greatest responsibility, responsibility is, is to serve, serve our Treasure Valley communities. The El Paso Las Cruces communities. Eastern Iowa communities. Mid-Michigan communities. We are extremely proud of the quality, balanced journalism that CBS4 News produces. But we, we are concerned, concerned about trouble and trying to be responsible. One side of news stories plaguing our country. Plaguing our country. In many countries, newspapers and television news and media shows make no pretense of being anything other than partisans of political parties. In the United States, news still postures as being more objective, but here the partisanship is to the political duopoly. The only politics that's worth covering is the horse race between the Democrats and the Republicans. The urgency of the climate crisis, the threat of nuclear war, and militarization, union organizing, protests that aren't violent or enormous, the inequality gap, structural racism, unless there's a video of egregious police violence, are rarely considered newsworthy, if covered at all. The major cable news networks have lost even the pretense of impartiality, with the Fox model of throwing red meat to the base now fully adopted by CNN and MSNBC. The degeneration of political discourse is a great threat to civil rights and what's left of American democracy and to a large extent when it comes to the media, is driven by the enormous profits made during election campaigns. So feeding the fury and the fear of all types is just good for business. And so what can we do about it? Now joining us is Robert McChesney. He's a professor emeritus in communication at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He's written several books on media and politics, including People Get Ready, The Fight Against the Jobless Economy and a Citizen-Less Democracy, and Blowing the Roof Off the 21st Century, Media Politics and the Struggle for Post-Capitalist Democracy. Thanks for joining us, Bob. My pleasure, Paul. I, I was just telling Bob off camera that my, my eight-year-old daughter, when she was four, uh, was I said to read the cover of Bob's book. She was four or five, and she said, People Get Ready to change your clothes instead of change the world. And then she says, people get ready to rule the world, which I thought was was pretty good. Maybe she was inspired by the book. Uh, anyway, let's, let's talk about the state of media. So this election campaign we've just come through, um, I, I've, Fox has been obviously, uh, the business model is to support the right wing of the Republican Party, not just the Republican Party, although Karl Rove and his type, uh, some of the more center-center right Republicans have a, a, a pride of place there. But on the whole, it was feeding the kind of Trump fury. Uh, CNN used to have some pretense of, of being an actual news organization. I think they can just completely dropped it now. MSNBC, I guess, was more Fox-like. Uh, I mean, what's your take on what's happened? And, 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 and 
what significance does it have in terms of so many people get their news from cable news? Well, that's a great, you've, you framed it well. You know, I think the, you also framed the fact that even at its best, uh, commercial journalism in the United States has had real problems, even back in the glory days when we actually had journalism with reporters and newsrooms uh, actively covering communities, which we don't have any longer. And the problem that it had at its peak, professional journalism, commercial journalism in the United States, has been the range of legitimate debate on political issues has always been pretty much set by people in power. So, you know, economic issues were taken, looked at from the perspective of the dominant interests in the Republican and Democratic Party, which were the dominant commercial interests in society. Foreign policy was looked at pretty much the same way by both parties. The United States was a benevolent empire and had the right to rule the world as it saw fit, and the military was a necessary part of it. It wasn't really up for debate uh, in U.S. news media uh, in the 20th century. That was just a given, certainly in the second half of the 20th century. And during that period, we had a, a, a blossoming, rich, resource-rich uh, journalism for much of the many of those decades, yet still its coverage of war and peace matters of the economy tended to skew to a fairly narrow range of the sort of people who were at the lead of both political parties and the lead of the economy. And that was in the glory days. Uh, those, those look like wonderful days today when you look at what passes for journalism. Uh, and so the problem we have today is we still have the restriction to sort of elite opinion, setting the boundaries of what a legitimate story is and what an illegitimate story uh, might be. But we also now don't have the resources. And I'll tell a, a story that's not apocryphal. It's a true story, but it, it is apocryphal otherwise. Um, about 25 years ago, um, a, a little over 20 years ago, um, a guy named Rick Kaplan, who was the head of CNN at that time, and before that had been the head of MSNBC, just when it was starting, I think. Uh, but he certainly was the head of CNN in the late uh, 1990s. Uh, I got to know Rick Kaplan because uh, he was an alum of the University of Illinois where I taught. And he would come every year for a week to meet with students in the journalism program. And for several years in a row, I spent a lot of time with him, uh, talking to him during that week when he'd be on campus. And he told me a really interesting story about when he was at CNN in the late 90s. This was just when Fox News had started. And he uh, had a great year in the late 90s, like 1998, I think it was. And he was going in to meet with the CEOs at Time Warner, the parent company of CNN. And he was expecting to get patted on the back and get a big bonus and be told what a great job he's doing. And he went in for his annual meeting. And the, the poobahs at Time Warner were not totally excited. And he said, well, what's the problem? I've just had the best year ever in the history of CNN. It's been a, a landmark year for our network. And they said, well, look over here at this Fox News, what they're doing. Fox News, uh, they've made the same amount of uh, profits as CNN, and they've done it with far lower returns. They've managed to milk those profits out of a much lower revenue base. Why can't we get that sort of return out of our revenue base? And Kaplan said to them, and I'm paraphrasing from memory, he said, but if I do that, I'll have to get rid of all my reporters. And apparently the poobahs at uh, Time Warner basically didn't think that they, they nodded like that's not such a bad idea because uh, how much profit that Rupert Murdoch is making with Fox News. And what that got to is the, the commercial basis of the decline of journalism, uh, why it made so much sense economically to junk the reporters. Because Fox News found out if you got rid of reporters, um, you'd have to offer your audience something. You couldn't get rid of your reporters and then have bland associated press reports. No one's going to watch your network. 
But if you get rid of your reporters and then you tap into a section of the market that watches TV news and give them the, the take on the news that will appreciate, that's really inexpensive and you can build a name for yourself. And that was why Fox News was as brilliant a commercial idea as it was a political idea. And it was a truly brilliant commercial idea. And I think what we finally seen with CNN and MSNBC is they've adopted the same model and that the, the right lane was taken. So they took the left lane, but they're still within the boundaries of sort of elite thought. There, there's no lane for you, Paul. There's no lane for the intercept. There's no lane for democracy now. There's no lane for the sort of investigative journalism that even our mainstream media provided in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and our great newspapers, where you'd see some deep, wonderful digging. That doesn't exist anymore. But what we have, it's commercially driven, this journalism-free, pontificating, especially on cable TV news, satisfying an audience by sort of just talking to the same talking heads, covering the same two or three stories in every cycle, I mean, you could watch MSNBC and CNN from now until the cows come home, and you'd have no idea what's happening in Latin America, none whatsoever. I'll dare say that if you watched U.S. news media in the 1970s, or certainly read newspapers, you'd have a decent idea who the head of state were in all the major states, when elections were coming along, uh, what the great political issues were. Uh, I know because that's how I followed Latin American politics, and I, used, I know a lot more in the 70s than I know today by watching the media on uh, CNN and MSNBC, you think the world ended at our borders, basically. I think there's a couple of things. One is, if you watch the financial news, uh, read financial newspapers, if you on television, radio, Bloomberg, uh, you will get more of that kind of actual journalism. You will know more about the world because the investor class, they actually do want to know this kind of stuff. But the elites have more and more come to the realization that it's, as far as the majority of the population go, goes, the more ignorant people are, the better. Yes, yeah, so I, I think you're right. It, it, we see this, the business press, for the people who have to invest money and have a lot writing on the outcome, they need to know what's actually happening in the world to a certain extent to protect their interest. And so you're going to find much better reporting in the Wall Street Journal or The Economist or any uh, Bloomberg than you're going to find in the conventional general news media. Uh, but it also has all the biases of the class it, it is pitched to. So in that world, uh, labor movements are by definition highly suspect. Uh, deregulation or pro-market reforms are by definition uh, enthusiastically embraced is probably a really good idea if the, as long as they're implemented properly. Uh, that's just a given. That's not a subject to debate, despite whatever empirical evidence there might be. And and it's not when you get back to cable news, it's not entirely driven by the business model, because like, for example, most of the people I interview on the analysis would make superb guests on MSNBC or CNN. Uh, in fact, most of my guests are better informed than most of the guests that they're talking to already. Uh, but they don't fit in with this duopoly narrative. The, the analysis goes beyond just Republican versus Democrat. But and even at that level, they have a political kind of bias and censorship. Like AOC is rock star material. If purely from a money making point of view, how could you not have her on almost every day on MSNBC? But it doesn't play into the pro-corporate democratic narrative. So there's also this political bias, which sometimes even is ahead of what would make the money. Because, the, like, for example, the fight of the progressive wing 
to uh, versus the corporate Democrats. It's a good narrative. It's uh, people would want to watch that. Uh, but you, there's a bit of it, but not much. You're absolutely right. In fact, um, you can see some, a bit of a change here. When MSNBC was first cutting its teeth as a liberal network during the George W. Bush era, uh, 2001 to 2009, frequently it had guests on like uh, Glenn Greenwald uh, or Jeremy Scahill. And, you know, they'd be- Or Thomas Frank. Uh, yeah, they'd be doing really good uh, investigative critical work uh, exposing the Bush administration and its various crimes around the world. And then they were okay to be on the air. Uh, but as soon as Obama came in, when they applied the same standards that they applied to George W. Bush to Obama, that was unacceptable. They were basically ushered out the door. And, and that, that showed the strict line that was there in the sand of how far you could go. And your analysis is completely correct. What's, and what locks that in is that when um, now that Biden, you know, when Trump came into power, they did not open the door to the progressives in the, in the journalism community, again, like they had during the Bush era. Then, to the contrary, it seemed they battened on the hatches. They, they called him, called up McLean, said, get your guys over here to explain the world to us from the CIA's perspective, because that seems to be where the smart people are. And they called in the NSA and they called in Wall Street. And basically, they, this basically the corporate wing of the Democratic Party, the corporate worldview was accepted as that's the proper frame of reference for journalism on this network at, C, at MSNBC. And I think that more or less trickles to CNN pretty much the same. Although I will say that occasionally stuff leaks out of CNN that would never leak out anymore at MSNBC. Yeah, but not very often. Not very often, occasionally. Yeah, I've interviewed Thomas Frank a few times. Uh, he wrote a best-selling book, you know, what, What's the Matter with Kansas? Uh, was writing in major newspapers, well-known. And he's, and he's also one of the, a good guest. Not everybody who writes successful books is good on TV, but F Frank's good on TV. He's funny. He's, he knows stuff. He doesn't get booked by anybody anymore because he was cr critical of the Obama administration. Yeah, I mean, Paul... He <laughs> The book you wrote, Listen Liberal, which I'm sure you're familiar with, basically yeah. was yeah. a frontal assault on everything MSNBC and CNN stands for. It says basically the Democratic Party has abandoned the working class and embraced the professional class and rich people. And uh, that's a big reason why we have Trump. And that's not an argument that I think MSNBC has any interest in um, um, recognizing is legitimate. I think that was just not going to happen. When he was back bashing, um, uh, wondering why Democrats aren't getting the votes they ought to get from in Kansas, that was okay when they're out of power. Maybe he's got some way to help them get those votes in a general election. But when he's actually writing a book that goes right after the Democrats, is saying they're, it's not just the Republicans who have changed in the last 40 years by moving so far to the right now that they're sort of into the fascist zone, to be blunt, uh, the Democrats have done the same thing. They've moved significantly to the right on an issue after issue. And that's part of the dance with the Republicans that puts us in the situation we're in. That discussion is verboten uh, on MSNBC or CNN, except maybe to bring someone out if they've got a bestseller to yell at them, but they, they don't even recognize them. It's just not allowed there. Uh, you're gonna get the same drumbeat of a few talking points uh, that come right out of the heart of the corporate Democrat wing of the party, which is the dominant wing. It's where all the money is. And that's what you're going to hear over and over and over. And um, 
Uh, in that sense, it's not that much different from from Fox or the right wing media in that sense. But that doesn't do justice to just how bad Fox and the right are to leave it just right there. Uh, we've talked in the past about concentration of ownership and the extent to which there's a, you know, just a tiny handful of media companies owning the news. Uh, but it's in the last few years, especially since so 708, since the crash, uh, there's been the emergence of these big asset managers like BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard. And, you, and when you now look at who owns the media that, that owns the media, it's all, mostly finance. Uh, the New York Times, I believe, is 93% owned by financial institutions. Every major media company, with the exception of Bloomberg, which is privately owned, and the Washington Post that's privately owned, all the rest, institutional investors own controlling interest of those companies. Now, it doesn't mean they run them day to day, but they do get to choose who runs them day to day. And if they don't like the way it's being run, they can change the management. Finance has control over the media in a way it didn't have before. And what's important, not only in, in that kind of imperative on short-term return on capital invested, these same financial institutions own Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, the military industrial complex. They own, they have, in terms of owning the controlling interest of shares, uh, fossil fuel companies. So, so these media companies now are not just monopolies, they're integrated and part of monop financial monopolies that kind of own everything. You know, they have to get on the phone, they do their quarterly reports. Uh, so no wonder they don't want to see the left wing of the Democratic Party showing up on television. You know, that, that might have some bearing for like a CNN or MSNBC or a Fox, because those are the visible ideas of national news. But in a way, I, I must say, I think that that misses the point of what's happening in America today by a wide mark. That's in the 1980s and 90s. Um, I was one of the scholars who did this. There's a lot of emphasis on concentration ownership, the influence of the profit motive and ownership uh, and concentrated ownership, monopolistic markets on news. And, I, and it called basically for opening up more competitive markets and more public uh, funded voices to give us a better journalism. And I think it was proper analysis at the time. But something has changed fundamentally, which uh, I'm going to return to over and over as long as you interview me, which is that journalism no longer is profitable. Journal, no one can, no one's investing to do traditional journalism anywhere if they're out to make money. They might be doing it because they have a political edge they want to push. They might be doing it for this reason or that, but it's lost all its commercial value. It's no longer profitable. The capitalist class has basically abandoned journalism altogether. The only people buying up media outlets today are these hedge funds, equity funds, who are buying them to strip them for parts. They don't care about journalism. That's, that's the only people in the market. You can't find an investor to buy papers to do news or to buy news media to do news. So they think they're going to make a profit on their investment. And the reason for this, uh, there's a lot of reasons. It goes back 60 years that the process began uh, empirically, but it accelerated in the last 15 or 20 years, and now it's collapsed. The reason is that the economic basis for commercial journalism in the United States uh, since for over 100 years, for 120 years, has been advertising support, providing between 60 and 100 percent of the revenues uh, that supported journalism uh, in the country um, all during that period. It all came from advertising. 
Well, in the last 15 years, advertising has left journalism. They no longer need to support a local newspaper to reach their target audience. They no longer need to use conventional news media. They can go digitally online. They found much better ways, much more cost-effective ways to target their audience and to reach it. And for that reason, there's just no market, there's no revenues there. The only thing we're left with is subscribers. But subscribers aren't going to subscribe to a newspaper, which has like two pages long because it has no ads to pay for anything. There's just not enough money coming from subscribers. So the whole market's collapsed. That's where we're at. So that explains why how the hedge funds own what remains of news media. Uh, but the problem isn't that they're bad owners and if we, they were nice guys, we'd have better media. The problem is the whole system's dead. They're not buying it to create journalism. And that and that's the, the market. And the fact that we're even talking about MSNBC, CNN and Fox is a sign of the fact that we have no journalism. These are three stations that don't do any journalism. They basically have a bunch of people sit around and gossip about the news. They don't break any news. Uh, and they talk about it. They, if you watch it, you won't have any idea what's going on for the most part in the country or the world. But you'll know what the chattering classes think is important for us to hear about, uh, depending on your perspective, on um, sort of political spin. And, you know, that's not journalism. And they don't, you know, to the extent you see journalism on CNN or MSNBC, more often than not, they call in a reporter from the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, three of the remaining newsrooms that cover national politics left in this country who are actually covering stuff. And that's not very many people covering a huge country of 330 million people. It's absurd. Uh, we have no journalism left at the local level in this country. What, what remains is uh, virtually extinct at this point. It's on the verge of extinction. Yeah, I'm not sure we're, at, we're disagreeing. No, I, I, but I'm, I'm just framing it yeah. because the traditional idea is, well, you, you, you get more owners, more different companies producing it, and you'll get better results. You'll have more competition. You'll get uh, new ideas in that wouldn't have been, new stories will get covered that wouldn't be covered before. Well, in a, if, and you're assuming the marketplace will encourage that if there's a lot of different owners and participants. There's no marketplace anymore. I mean, that's the point. There's no, no one starting up new media successfully. No, one's, no investors trying to anymore. They've, they understand it. They've gotten the memo. If you want to lose your money, invest in journalism. Get out. So, you know, when, when Bezos bought the Washington Post, I forget the price he paid for it, but he probably paid one-tenth of what he would have had to pay for it a decade earlier. I mean, it has no value. And he bought it not to make money. It's a vanity buy so he can influence politics and push his agenda. It's not just this is a great investment. It's a crappy investment. It's the worst investment in his portfolio, no doubt. Uh, but it's the best investment to have political influence, which will protect his portfolio. Then it's a real winner. Now, the New York Times does seem to be a bit of a with an exception to the rule. Yeah. Uh, they are making money, aren't they? And, and there, there are a lot of journalists working there. The New York Times has become the national newsroom now. It is the only real national place that has a newsroom that covers national politics seriously and has a staff that does it. And for that reason, it's a national newspaper and it has subscribers all over the country. It's the only place you can go. So there's room for one paper. There's, there's room for one newspaper that can make money nationally doing what the New York Times does. Doesn't seem like there's room for much more than that. Certainly if it's general news, not just business news or news on specific areas, sports news. Um, and yeah, so we're down to one. But you know what we had 30 years ago in the United States or 40 years ago by comparison? There were probably a dozen major American newspapers that not only had big Washington bureaus, they had bureaus in London and Paris and Moscow uh, in South America. 
they were covering the world. You actually saw international news, which doesn't exist anymore. You have, ironically, in the global age. Uh, so there's one newsroom left. And to some extent, the Washington Post will cover domestic politics. Uh, it champions the stuff in Washington. And the Wall Street, Wall Street Journal does some good reporting still. Uh, but the rest of it, it's mostly just gossip. Now, there are some great reporters, don't get me wrong. Um, and you're one of them. There are some great reporters covering stuff, but it's not in that world. It's it's on the margins, it's on the fringes. It's being supported through like you have to do, try to find people to support you, willing to give you money because they understand the importance of the work. Uh, but there's not enough money out there, even if you find rich people to give you money to backroll the sort of resources we need to cover Baltimore, Maryland, or Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or anywhere else in the country. That's the great crisis we face, not to mention the national news. Yeah, I agree with all that. Uh, the thing about this concentration of ownership that, that I was saying is that the, the interest of finance is now so directly involved in the media that even though the New York Times is, what I, I don't think there's any parallel to it in the United States in terms of a, a functioning international and national newsroom, uh, the, uh, the, the boundaries of where they're willing to go are still within the realm of this of one the, the the duopoly in terms of uh, politics. It's still about Republicans versus Democrats, but even on other issues, like I was looking, I've been preoccupied with BlackRock, this big asset management company. It's was seven trillion dollars under the control, and uh, between them and and State Street and Vanguard and some of the other smaller ones. They, they vote the shares that control something like 95% of the S&P 500. Uh, but when I tried to find stories about BlackRock that really are revealing, the place I really found them was on Bloomberg. Mm -hmm. Well, Bloomberg's privately owned. Yeah. Uh, where the New York Times is owned by BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, and the other institutional investors. Uh, so there's a kind of a... Uh, People get to know, I guess they know where, where their bread is buttered. Uh, so, so, I, so in no way am I disagreeing with what's, how the market for journalism has collapsed. I'm just saying it's even, it's even gotten worse than that yeah. because the ownership is so intertwined now that the same people that uh, write about nuclear weapons and nuclear war strategy, the same ownership owns the, comp the 12 companies that make nuclear weapons. So it reinforces the problems to begin with. And then some. So let's talk about the sort of interconnection between how to change this. Now, it, it, to really change it, we're going to need a breakthrough politically, at least at some state levels, because this donor model, we haven't seen anything with the donor model get to scale. Even Intercept, which has some serious money from Pierre Amidier and does good investigative journalism and does get reference in the mainstream press. Uh, I guess maybe democracy now is the, the most successful based on foundation and donor model. But the vast majority of Americans have never heard of democracy now. Uh, so it's going to be connected to the issue of a breakthrough politically, uh, at nationally, at state levels, because there needs to be some really serious public money put into this idea of, 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 of a real democratic media 
And that's a political problem because it, just the private donation problem, uh, it's just not going to be enough. Like you could imagine a state, especially a bigger state like California, say, could put up real funding uh, for independent media if they would have the political guts to do it. Uh, but anyway, how do you imagine this changing? Well, um, I think I, I'm open-minded. I think uh, we have to be, see what, throw a lot of ideas out there, work in them and see what develops. I don't think there's one plan that will solve it necessarily. Although there are some things we know for sure. What most Americans don't realize is that um, the First Amendment to our Constitution, as uh, Justice Potter Stewart put it, uh, is a structural demand uh, on the government to make sure there is a, a press system. There is an independent free press. Uh, it's not just the don't censor the press. You've got to have a press that exists uh, that can't be censored. And so it's it's two parts to the, our, our free press tradition. The first, the first part I talked about, that there actually be a free independent free press, was forgotten by the time the commercial media came along in the 20th century, these huge giants. It assumed the market would always produce it. That was never a problem. Uh, you'd always have this huge news media. And the only thing you worried about was the government censoring it. Well, in fact, at the time of the American Revolution, there was no guarantee you'd have a press system. It required massive public subsidies to have a press system. We had enormous public subsidies. Uh, the primary one was the post office, which was invent created basically to be the free distribution arm of every American newspaper or at a nominal expense for the first hundred years of American history which made it possible for to have this plethora of diverse views of newspapers, which are foundational to our political democracy, the best parts of our democracy. There wasn't a single social movement of value from abolitionist movement to the suffragette movement, labor movement, all the rights to expand the franchise that weren't led by editors, that weren't led by news media. The media was the center of democracy. And those media only survived because they were supported by the post office getting free distribution or really inexpensive postage that covered all their distribution costs. And so we, that's our American tradition. We have this rich tradition of understanding the exact problem you outlined, that you need a news media to have a functioning democracy, and we can't bank on the market. And we're in a situation now where the market clearly has given up, it's failed. We are in a, this is a public good, news media. It's something society desperately needs, but the market won't produce in sufficient quality or quantity. And so I think it's got to be, if we understand that, then say, okay, how do we solve that? How do we get the great political problem? How do you get sufficient public funds to support independent, uncensored news media, but not let the government control who gets the money and how it's used? That's the problem. Is it solvable? Well, the postal subsidy solved it. The postal subsidy, everyone got it who was a newspaper. They didn't care what your politics were. And in fact, the reason why we know it was such an extraordinarily successful policy is that the first great scandal with uh, the post office delivering newspapers came in the antebellum period when Southern postmasters refused to carry abolitionist newspapers. And that was considered such an outrage in the North. It was one of the main uh, factors that drove Northern anger at the South and hatred of slavery, that it would take away democracy if you couldn't even talk about uh, slavery or abolition. And uh, the other, there's only been another handful of other incidents in which you have the government, uh, the post office would try censorship that were always criticized. In fact, during World War I, the last great moment when anti-war tracts were censored, the, what the U.S. government did during World War I was so outrageous that it led to all the great First Amendment decisions the Supreme Court made that we live with today came on the heels of World War I. 
And a lot of that came from the censorship of the post office of anti-war material being considered just obscene by most Americans. So we have this rich history of solving that problem successfully. Now we've got to come, how do we do it in the digital age? How do we do it in an era in which you don't need ink and newspapers? In an era in which you want to have local media and local media disappears in the digital era because once you go digital, localness means nothing. For you to do it, your program, Paul, even if you want to do just um, Baltimore, Maryland, when you put it online, it's seen as easily by someone in China as it is in Baltimore, Maryland. And so you basically have an international audience automatically. It doesn't, localism is stripped out of the technology. And for that reason, we've got to come up with a way to have local media that covers communities, that draws people together, independent, competitive media that's functional and accountable. And can it be solved? Well, I think it can. Uh, and I've worked for years with a number of people, and not just in the United States, but in Canada and, and in Europe, um, on plans to do it. And we think basically it should be a publicly funded uh, budget that basically people in local communities would vote for whichever nonprofit media they wanted every year to get it. Uh, and you'd have, so, you know, if it's $200 per person, it would mean you do it at the county level because then uh, counties are sort of the core unit. And you, everyone in the county could vote for how you'd allocate the budget for that. And you pick a few. And then everyone who gets over 3% of the vote qualifies. And they get however many votes they get that amount of money. And you have it every year. So it's competitive. So no one gets to just lock in a position and ignore the public. Uh, but something like that, uh, starting with that principle. Now, maybe it could be done at the state level first. But I think we ought to really think nationally. I, I guess we're at a point now where you look at the information level of American politics today compared to what it was even in the Reagan era. Um, and it's frightening. There's no other word for it. It's utterly frightening to see QAnon, to see uh, this other stuff that's being widely circulated as, you know, legitimate. Uh, and there's no, the reason for that is there's nothing, conspiracy theories, the only theory is trying to make sense of the world. There's no, no one else is trying to explain how do you understand the world. You don't have a journalism. We've got to get journalism back in communities, explaining the world to people in competitive groups. So it's not just one voice, but multiple voices. And, and the, one, this voting model, there's uh, models of it that already exist in Europe. In Scandinavia, I believe there are some countries where they have actual votes and elections. And based on who wins, they have three, four channels that get apportioned with resources that go with those channels. In the United States, there is a kind of structure that kind of exists that could be built on, which is these uh, community cable channels where cable companies have had to open up channels uh, in order to get cities as part of their obligation to cities to put up their cable lines. But they're completely under-resourced. They're, the idea that cable companies had to pay money so these uh, channels could function has been so whittled away that most of these cable channels outside of a city like you know Manhattan or something, maybe in some of San Francisco, most of them have very little resources. But there actually is cable space. There is channels that exist that if they were really resourced, and they have a bit of democratic uh, uh, structure to them now because at least the I believe some are voted on by communities who runs these cable channels, uh, not cable channel, community channels. Anyway, yeah. there's sort of an infrastructure that, that at least there's something there to be built on. I think the national politics is just so screwed up right now. But maybe at a state level there, or a city level even, there could be some breakthroughs. 
you're, you might be right. I'm, I'm open-minded. I'm not, I don't want to stop any city or state from pursuing something like this. Uh, but at the same time, I do think it's time to, every time someone talks about media, that we inject this conversation at the beginning. Because unless we get the resources to have an independent, uncensored news media that's actually covering this, our communities, um, unless we get that right in the middle of everything, all, everything else we're doing that we think is about democracy is pretty much irrelevant. I mean, if we, we need to have, this is, this is sort of the foundation of democratic theory, not just in this country, but globally. You've got to have some semblance of a credible independent press. We don't have one anymore. Uh, and uh, so I'm fine for however we want to do it, but, I, but I'm, I, that's probably why I answered your question about media ownership the way I did, that we've got a bigger problem than just who owns the media. That's not that that isn't a problem. We, have need, we don't have media to be owned. I mean, we don't have the resources there that are being done, doing the job. If you live in a city, most American cities now, or communities or counties, the term that we've invented in the last 30, I'll let you uh, preface this. In the 1970s, there was no term for homelessness because homelessness didn't exist really. Uh, by the 1980s, it was commonplaces. We had millions of people who couldn't afford housing. Um, and now we've got a new term that's come that's never existed in America before that has become a fastest growing concept in journalism. It's called the news desert. These are places in America where there are no reporters covering a community. None, zero, nunca. Uh, and no newsroom, certainly. And if you expand news deserts to mean like you have to have a minimum number of reporters per 100,000 people, a wide portion of this country is now a news desert, but there's no really any credible journalism covering your state, your community. And, you know, the difference for anyone our age, Paul, um, from what that meant growing up, no matter the problems of their journalism, but it used to be if you read your local newspaper and listened to the AM news, you'd have a pretty reasonable idea of what was going on in your community. You have a baseline. There's none of that today. Most people can't mention, they don't have any clue what's going on in their city or their community. And that's what happens. And boy, you just really can't, the system's not gonna work very well um, as long as that's the case. In fact, it, we're seeing the results now. It makes possible uh, someone just like Donald Trump. And it's not an error that the far right in this country, the bright parts of the world, the Mercers, uh, the Bannons, revel in the collapse of journalism. They revel in the idea that they can basically control now the narrative and not have really a voice they have to contend with. They can just dismiss it as baloney, as fake news. Um, this is a serious issue. And nothing more serious than the lack of coverage of the climate crisis. Yeah. We're, we're, within, we're within, at the moment right now, even if there's a certain amount of action by the Biden administration, but some leading scientists uh, from the IPCC a couple of years ago had a report that if every country that signed the Paris Accords fulfilled all of their commitments at the Paris Accords, we would still hit two degrees warming above industrial pre-industrial average by 2050. If they all fully achieved their commitments. Well, the science is getting pretty clear now that if you hit two degrees, you have a, an effect called runaway. In fact, I have an interview I'm publishing in the next couple of days with a climate scientist. Runaway is 
for example, more forest fires, more carbon emission from the fires, more melting of the Arctic, more methane released, you start getting this runaway effect that after you hit two degrees warming, it gets difficult to impossible to not hit three and then four, and you essentially have an unlivable planet. How is that not the most compelling story night after night after night? So it's, it's not just a politics story. It's, it's an extraordinary story. And obviously, going back to where we, the point of departure for this interview, uh, the framework for American journalism is sort of what elites consider relevant issues and what they're debating. And this clearly is not especially relevant issue for the elites of this country uh, because they're not encouraging this debate whatsoever. Their politicians aren't encouraging it. They're not paying for politicians to encourage it. And we're living with the consequences. And theoretically, uh, in, a, in a democratic society, even if the people who run the country don't want to talk about it, there's a news media that's focused on the issues that aren't always going to be popular with people in power. And that's what a free press is for. And they would be doing exactly this. They would be beating the drum on this issue, publishing the work, talking to people, talking to activists, what they're doing. So if you live in a community, you'd know what people are doing in a community on this issue. Right now, most Americans are living in a closet, so to speak, with the light off because they have no idea what's going on in their community. There might be lots of people actively organizing this. They'll have no idea. They'll have no idea why it's a big deal. They're clueless. And it's not their fault. I mean, you say, well, they should know. Well, how are you supposed to know about something if you never tasted it? Now, 74 million people just voted. And that's not the only issue. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of related issues right up there. Uh, issues of war and peace, uh, which are also potentially catastrophic for our species, are, are completely off limits in our commercial news media and our mainstream news media, NPR as well. Uh, you know, the range of debate is, uh, the paraphrase Jeff Cohen's great line, it's from GE to GM. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> although I must say the Republicans have, you know, they've brought in this new fascist element, which is really their, their new special contribution of the last decade, uh, where, you know, the range of debate used to be like, narrowly between sort of a corporate liberal viewpoint on foreign policy. Now we've edged into the isolationist, you know, racist, uh, screw the rule of law. I mean, just dark underbelly of uh, neoliberalism. And so that's our range of debate now is like, well, those are your two choices. It's, it's, it's no choice at all. All right. Thanks for joining us, Bob. My pleasure, Paul. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. And I hope Bob will be back often in the future. And don't forget, we have a fundraising campaign on now. Uh, go to the website. It explains everything. But it's a matching grant campaign. And if you donate, it's going to get matched. So thanks for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm -hmm.